And welcome to Generations. This is Kevin Swanson, Bill Jack. Hey. Worldview Academy with me. Happy Thanksgiving, Bill. You as well. We have much to be thankful for. Thanksgiving 2023. Mm-hmm. 402nd Thanksgiving since the first Thanksgiving service held by the pilgrims in Plymouth Plantation. Wow. What was it? Uh, 1621. Mm-hmm. They came in 1620. They had the first Thanksgiving service, 1621. And... I think it was George Washington that established one of the first Thanksgiving. 1789. 1789, yes. He he declared a day of Thanksgiving and gratitude last Thursday of the month. And then it became the perpetual holiday in 1942. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, here we are, 402nd Thanksgiving celebration uh, in the United States of America. And you can ask your friends from around the country, around the world, uh, are you celebrating Thanksgiving? And of course, every Christian should say, well, of course. Every day. Every day. That's right. Yeah, so, you, you got to ask the question. You got to be more pointed. You got to ask, to whom do we give thanks? Yeah, exactly. And, and people will say the turkey and uh-huh. they will say all kinds of things, but a lot of people will forget it's God. Yeah. We're thankful for the true and living God and his blessings upon ourselves and upon our nations. And I I want to give us some of the 10 most important providential workings in all of human history. I've spent the last four months, really the last year working on American history and world history, studying probably hundreds of books on some of the great things that have happened in history, especially as we see good things happening in the world around us. Hey, Jesus is here. He has turned on the lights and big things have happened around the world in the last 2000 years since our Lord and savior came. So I want to look at the 10 most important turning points in all of human history. But to Bill, you first, what comes to your mind? Well, I, first w- off? I would say Gutenberg's translation of the Bible, printing of the Bible. Printing of the Bible. Printing yeah, of the Bible. It's big, huge. That's big. Huge, huge, huge. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And don't forget Tyndale, who translated Tyndale. it into the yep. uh, English language. Yep. And then Luther posting the 95 Theses. That was huge. Yep. Mm-hmm. Reformation. Yep. 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 So I tend to go back to the Reformation a lot. Yep. So you're looking at. Was it 1517 mm-hmm. with the posting of the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg church door? And uh, that kicked off a reformation that changed the entire world. Well, a couple other events, and let me just hit on these, because again, this is something of the fruit of my labors and uh, some really amazing providential events that God has brought to bear. Remember that history is God's story and God is doing something in history. Granted, it's human hands and hearts and heads that are engaging, but ultimately it's God who makes things happen. Isn't that amazing, though, that he he chooses to to uh, partner with us? Yeah, he does. Yeah, he uses that, us. That he uses yeah. us for his glory. That yeah. we we are, you know, co laborers with the Holy Spirit in a sense. Yeah, that, that's just that's a uh, he doesn't need me. And there are what I would call first dominoes. Oftentimes, tiny little dominoes, not necessarily big dominoes. But you know what I'm talking about, right, Bill? You get a first domino that affects something else, which affects something else, which eventually changes the world. Yeah. And so you get these tiny little dominoes that tip over. And wow, setting new directions for all of human history. The first of which is really Jesus coming, dying on the cross, rising from the dead. And then the Pentecost, the Mm -hmm. pouring out of the Holy Spirit of God upon 120 people and the teaching of the mighty works of God to all of the nations gathered there in Jerusalem on that first day, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. 
And wow, big times, big times, big times throughout the history of the world. And let me throw in a few others. The uh, settling of Columcille on the island of Iona. Now, why is that so important? Because that's the opening of the gospel into the far reaches of Europe. Remember, you've got to disciple Europe first. Well, we could include, you know, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter and others. But think about the the reaching of the far elements of the European continent. Of course, that happens with Patrick first and then Columcille. Following Patrick's death, another epoch of Christian missionary progress came by the Irish missionary Columcille, also known as Columba, is born the son of a king, given the name Corinthian, which is the fox, and could very well have been the king of Ireland. But at 40 years of age, he got involved in clan warfare. And thousands died in the conflict, and Columcille went into exile, committed his life to missionary service for Jesus Christ from that point forward. And uh, the fox thereafter turned into a dove. For his service to Jesus, he was renamed Columcille, translated the dove of the church. And uh, from that uh, point on, this great missionary would become one of the most gentle, courageous, wise, loved, and feared men in the history of the church. Some viewed him as the founder of the modern nation of Scotland. Columcille planted several churches in Caledonia, that's modern-day uh, Scotland. His major work was accomplished in forming a missionary school on the island of Iona in I-8563. This little island off the far northwest corner of Scotland became the center of Chaldean Christianity for at least 300 years. And this was by far the most important missionary outreach in all of Europe for, well, approximately 200 years. And eventually, you know, you get Boniface, you get Augustine of Canterbury and others that come up from Rome. But uh, this is the Chaldean church, and they did a huge, huge amount of work to uh, disciple the continent of Europe. Now, secondly, before I take a break, I want to hit one more. Cyril and Methodius translated the Word of God into the Cyrillic language. This is very important. This is one of the very first of the translations of God's Word into another language, besides Latin. Of course, it was translated into Latin by Jerome. But Cyril and Methodius stepped up and said, we're going to do it in the Cyrillic language, which would eventually affect all of the Cyrillic people in Eastern Europe and, of course, Russia as well. The brothers actually were born in Thessalonica, sons of a military commander, known to history as the Apostles to the Slavs, these young men were highly educated in languages, both well-equipped to disciple the nation of Moravia. They conceived a written language around AD 862, which uh, developed into the modern Cyrillic alphabet still used to this day. So Cyril and Methodius created the Cyrillic alphabet. Then they translated the New Testament and the Psalms into the language of the Moravians. Methodius and Cyril also provide the first civil law code for King Radislav based on biblical law. It's a big step for a barbarian country towards liberty and righteous law, which previously kings had ruled by their own arbitrary whims. Well, for their pains in their mission work, guess what happened? Methodius and Cyril were called to account before the Roman church authorities. The Moravian territory was controlled by the Carolingians and thus under the auspices of the Roman church. The Bible translations and liturgy produced in the Cyrillic language had violated the policies of the Roman church, which insisted that there were only three sacred languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. The brothers defended their position 
In Venice, against the church leaders who denounced their translation efforts, Cyril pointed out that other nations worship the true and living God in their own languages, including the Goths, the Armenians, the Persians, and the Egyptians. Immediately following the Venice debate, Methodius and Cyril were called to appear before Pope Nicholas I in Rome, who died before the brothers could answer the Pope's summons. Well, when they arrived in Rome, Nicholas's successor, Hadrian II, gave his approval to their efforts, much to the surprise of the rest of the church hierarchy. Cyril died in Rome, crying out his last words. These were Cyril's last words. Disperse the ungodly and pagan evildoers who blaspheme thee, destroy the three-language error, increase thy church by multitudes, preserve all in one spirit, make all peoples acknowledge the true faith, implant in their hearts thy word, for this is thy gift, that at the preaching of the gospel of thy Christ they accept us unworthy men, exhorting them to the performance of good works which are pleasing to thee. Methodius returned to the mission field, this time ordained as a pastor in the Roman church. He ministered in Bohemia and Moravia and as far north as Kiev. And as I recall, he spent more time in Roman prisons as well. So it wasn't over at that point. Well, friends, take a break. Be back in just a moment with more of God's providential workings in all of human history. Big stories coming up next on Generations on this Thanksgiving Day, 2023. Hello, my friends. For the last 15 years, the Generations team has produced a Christian curriculum specifically for families who want to give their children a God-centered, Bible-saturated, biblical worldview-based education. Our commitment is to restore the Christian faith, generational faith in an age where we are losing faith in this country and almost anywhere around the world where Christian children attend secular schools or use secular curriculum and imbibe secular culture. Now, we're not relying on the pre-Christian Greeks for an educational model here. We're not relying on the post-Christian secularist for the education model either. Our curriculum is based in a biblical worldview. We put hundreds of Bible verses in the history books and integrate the truths into the subjects. We want to glorify God on every page of the science books. We immediately integrate knowledge into life application and natural revelation with special revelation. We keep Christ at the very center of the history books with preparing the world for Jesus and taking the world for Jesus. I believe God is calling this generation in this highly secularized age to a radical change in how they disciple their children. Please check out our program for education of your children and grandchildren at www.generations.org. Back on the Generations program on this Thanksgiving 2023. And, uh, Greatest events, greatest providential events that change the direction of all human history in Corsera and Methodius take first place. And approximately 600 years later, Yanhu shows up at Bethlehem Chapel and begins to preach the word of God in the common language. Again, the Moravians were really into this. They didn't really like the idea of imposing Latin upon the people, but having access to the word of God in their own language. Well, John Hus was the beginning of the Reformation and he was eventually burned at the stake. But his progeny, which would have been the Moravian Brethren, actually survived. 300 years later, guess what happens? 300 years later, after persecuting, uh, persecution under the hands of the Roman Catholics in Prague, the Moravians move into Hernhut, and the Moravian Pentecost occurs. Without exception, every missionary outreach for Christ's Church of Historical Import 
initiated upon a powerful outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God with immediate and deep-seated effects of the conviction of sin, reception of the gospel, and the fruits of love, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The first major Protestant missionary movement of the 18th century begins with Zinzendorf, Count Zinzendorf, inviting the Moravian Brethren into Hernhut. Well, once they got there, of course, there were many, many internal squabbles, which happens when Christians move into the same area and try to get along with each other. <laughs> Have you ever attempted that, Bill? Have you ever <laughs> attempted to try to be in the same church together with other Christians? Uh, yeah. yeah. You have attempted that a few times. That, it's kind of like family. It is, yes. Yeah. Well, as the Hernhut Congregation of Moravians in Saxony, Germany, received communion on one particular Sunday, the Holy Spirit came upon them in a powerful way. Here's a diary entry from a member of the congregation. Remember, it all starts with the Pentecost, August 13, 1727. The church service started with the hymn, Deliver Me, My God, whereby a wicked person watching the ceremony was totally overcome. Afterwards, Pastor wrote, supported by the congregation, bestowed a true apostolic blessing upon the two confirmants. Then the congregation fell down before the Lord and started to cry out and sing at the same time, My soul before thee prostrate lies. One could hardly tell whether we were singing or crying. But it happened with such grace that the officiating minister was also totally perplexed by it. After the hymn was finished, some of the brethren prayed with divine power, laying before the Lord the plight of the congregation, especially that they were at a loss as to what to do with those who had left us, doubting they would succeed with sectarianism, separatism, since both are not the right way for the Lord's house. We also prayed childlike and modestly that he should teach us the true nature of his church and how to live and walk in his law that we remain unsullied and inoffensive so that we don't become solitary but fruitful and neither violate the loyalty and obedience sworn to him and his word nor injure the common love through trivialities. We prayed that he would fully bestow on us the holy order of his grace and not allow our souls to be led from the blood and cross theology on which our soul salvation depends. We laid before him, especially the worrying circumstances of our neighboring brethren, hundreds of souls that were awakened through our household, but now partly led astray, partly fail to grow in the spirit and only want to burden themselves with more knowledge. Afterwards, as a great anointment flowed over all of us, we felt not far from him. We prayed in faithful assurance that he should let our two elders, Christian David and Mekior Nitschman, who were on a mission in Hungary, be powerfully drawn into our fellowship and experience what we had just experienced. Following the absolution, Communion was held with humbled and strengthened hearts, and each of us went home feeling quite beside ourselves. We spent the day and the following in calm and joyful composure and learned to love. Christian David Nishman felt a powerful urge to pray at that very moment, 10 o'clock a.m., they had marked the time, that the outpouring came upon their home church. Christian David later wrote, It is truly a miracle of God that out of so many kinds and sects of Catholic, Lutheran, Reformed, Separatists, and the like, we could have been melted into one. There were we all baptized by the Holy Spirit on that day. From that time on, Hernhut became a living congregation of Jesus Christ, according to Nitschman. Immediately following the Pentecost, the Moravians initiated a practice of continuous prayer, 24-hour-a-day prayer from Hernhut that perpetuated for a hundred years. Very famous, by the way. This was the beginning of a worldwide campaign that would profoundly impact the entire globe for the Lord Jesus Christ. The pioneering Moravians would establish missions in South Africa, the Danish West Indies, the British West Indies, Greenland, North American, uh, native populations, Suriname, Labrador, Tibet, Jamaica, and Nicaragua. That is my number three on my list of the most important moments in all of human history. Pretty yep. big, huh, Bill? That's, yeah. They were very you've, you've heard of the hundred years of prayer. Mm. It's pretty, in, pretty famous. Yeah. And it really covered that first period in which the gospel would go 
all around the world and affect the other 90% of the world's population, which indeed it did. Mm. Huge, huge moment. A providential moment of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and a Pentecostal experience upon the Moravian Brethren in 1727. My next event is this, the translation of the Bible for the very first time in an Asian language, taking the Bible to 25% of the world's population. With the support and the insistence of the King of Denmark, Frederick IV, as well as the mentor of Count Zinzendorf, a man by the name of Bartholomew Ziegenbalg was the first Protestant missionary in Eastern Asia. Ziegenbalg, just a young man, 25 years of age, produced a grammar in the Tamil language in India, followed up with an extremely competent translation of the New Testament, the first complete translation in an Indian dialect, indeed the first in an Asian language in all of history. The Society for the Promoting of Christian Knowledge in England delivered a printing press to the mission at Tranquilbar in 1712, and copies of the scriptures were made available to the new church. Ziegenbald died on February 23, 1719, at the age of 36 years of age, at which point he had translated the Old Testament up to the book of Ruth. Wow. Now that's making history. Yeah. Because remember, India at this point constituted 25% of the world's population. Wow. And they had yet to receive the word of God in their language. Right. Indeed, as far as I know, no Asian people had received the word of God, as in all of the New Testament or all of the Bible in their language. Really? China would have to wait till the early 1800s. Mm. Okay. A couple others. You want to hit a couple others? Yeah. Are these fun? Yep. You enjoying these? Mm -hmm. Every one of these is the work of God it has in to history. Be. It has to be. Yeah. How else would you break through? It's impossible to do it on man's strength. That's or right. Wisdom. That's right. Okay. Let's move on. These are sort of exciting to me. The planting of Canada. One of the most dangerous times in all of human history. Henry IV. Talk about Henry IV, King of France. Henry IV's mother may be considered the most courageous woman in what was the most dangerous times of the Reformation era. Her name was Jean, Queen of Navarre and mother of Henry IV. She ruled from 1555 to 1572. She lived out a most colorful career, faced off the Queen of France, Catherine de' Medici, while defending the Protestant Huguenots. Jean was a steadfast defender of the French reformers whose lot she had joined up with on Christmas Day, 1560. After her husband's death in 1562, Jean's teenage son, Henry, and future king of France, was constantly at her side as she administered the affairs of her kingdom, quite competently by all accounts. Before she died, however, Jean warned her son in no uncertain terms concerning the flagrant promiscuity of the young women at Catherine's court cautioning him to have no part in it. Henry, by the way, did not altogether abide by his mother's warnings. Just two months after Jean's death, and most likely inspired by King Charles IX's mother, Catherine de Medici, the king ordered a massacre of leading Huguenots on August 23, 1572, it was called, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, and it occurred two months after the death of the Queen of Navarre. The heightened panic among the Catholics came after the wedding of the king's sister to a Protestant king, Henry of Navarre. Tens of thousands of Protestants were killed. Nowhere was the demonic opposition to the Christian faith and a biblically-based reformation during these years more intense than in France or the capital. After 12 assassination attempts, 
Henry IV was finally dispensed with. That is, the Protestant son of the Protestant Queen of Navarre. Twelve attempts. Twelve attempts. But not before, but not before, providing safe passage and an escape hatch for the Huguenot Christians. First settlers in New France, that is Canada, were Huguenots commissioned by Henry IV. And that includes Samuel de Champlain, Amar de Chaste, and a few others. God, by his merciful providential work, raised up both Jean and Henry to make a way for the Reformation in France to survive and to thrive and to spread out to the far corners of the world. And by the way, under Louis XIV, the Huguenots were completely eliminated. God raises up and deposes yes, he heads does. of states for his purpose. And, 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 and they just barely squeaked out and escaped mm. to yeah. the establishment of Canada. Yeah. And hence, there's a French element of Canada. Eventually, of course, Protestant England takes control of the nation. All right. Here's event number six. How am I doing? Doing well. Keep going. Yeah. Next one is Gustavus Adolphus in his defense of Protestantism in 1632. The war was instigated largely, this is the 30-year war. The 30-year war was instigated largely by Ferdinand II, who at first attempted to restore Catholicism in Bavaria, only to face a revolt and a removal from the throne. Two days later, he's promoted to emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, still committed to restoring the Catholic Church in Europe and wiping out every form of religious dissent. He was a committed Catholic, and he was set to destroy all Protestants from the continent. That was his commitment. Well, it turns out Frederick V was offered the crown of Bohemia and thus precipitated the the war. Loaded for vengeance with an unrestrained religious fervor to justify it, Ferdinand, a Catholic, invaded Bohemia and crushed Frederick's army at the Battle of White Mountain at A.D. 1618 to kick off the most destructive conflict in Europe's history. Most egregious of all was the Imperial Army's sack of Protestant Magdeburg on May 20th, 1631 and the killing of 20,000 residents by mass slaughter and a burning conflagration. Well, like William the Silent of the Netherlands, Gustavus Adolphus from Sweden favored religious tolerance for the German estates. Before he was killed, the king established a form of government for southern and western Germany and guaranteed religious liberty to Protestants and the prevention of all persecution of Catholics. He had saved Protestantism on the European continent in the hour of its greatest peril, as well as salvaging religious liberty and, of course, gaining the victory in the 30-year war. Well, I can move on. Uh, One of my other favorite events is King's Mountain of 1781. And that was, of course, the battle that really moved the balance towards the United States and winning the war against this gigantic empire that was threatening the existence of America. Between the fall of 1779 and the summer of 1780, the American colonials were facing the very worst of conditions in the war against the empire. The French Navy supposedly came to help uh, George Washington. They'd miserably failed in its attacks on Newport, uh, Rhode Island, Savannah, Georgia. In the most devastating setback of the war, General Clinton had captured Charleston on December 26, 1779. In May of 1780, the colonials suffered a tremendous loss at Waxhaws, resulting in a massacre of Virginians. Then, to make matters worse... General Gates' troops were routed by British General Tarleton, a man known for his cruel severity, on August 16, 1780. During these critical weeks and months of the war, Continental Congress 
responded in genuine reverence for God and reliance upon his aid. Three separate calls were made for national repentance and prayer. On April 28, 1780, the congressional delegates issued the call, it having pleased the righteous governor of the world for the punishment of our manifold offenses to permit the sword of war still to harass our country. It becomes us to endeavor by humbling ourselves before him and turning from every evil way to avert his anger and obtain his favor and blessing with one heart, one voice, to implore the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth to remember her mercy in his judgments to make us sincerely penitent for our transgressions, to prepare us for deliverance, and to renounce the evils with which he is pleased to visit us. Two more days of prayer and fasting were then called, October 17th, 1780, December 7th, 1780 as well. And uh, this one read uh, this way, instructing the people to assemble on that day to celebrate the praises of our divine benefactor, to confess our unworthiness of the least of his favors, and to offer our fervent supplications to the God of all graces that it may please him to pardon our heinous transgressions and incline our hearts for the future to keep all of his laws and to cause the knowledge of Christianity to spread all over the earth. By the way, the Congress today doesn't issue resolutions quite like this. Not quite. Well, as it turns out, of course, God blessed the nation from this point on. Uh, heaven's response came months later. The decisive event that turned the tide occurred on October 7, 1780. The British Major Patrick Ferguson had warned the South Carolinians that he has come to hang your leaders and waste your country with fire and sword. The threat of scorched earth warfare became a real concern to the citizens as he approached a place called King's Mountain. The British Major Patrick Ferguson vowed to his troops, that he would be king of that mountain, and even God Almighty could not remove him. That's a don't ever say that. Never, never, never. Say, don't don't say that. It's a big mistake. <laughs> These sorts of declarations do not end well. To deny the sovereignty of God while claiming sovereignty to oneself is hazardous business. Meanwhile, okay, out in a town called Sycamore Shoals, Tennessee, the pioneers had organized a militia to defend hearth and home from the invading force, Patrick Ferguson. They called themselves the Overmountain Men, largely made up of Scots-Irish Presbyterians. As the men prepared for battle, they solicited the aid of their Presbyterian pastor to preach the sermon. The little-known reverend, Samuel Doak, preached what may be the most powerful sermon in the history of this country. He ended his final prayer with the passionate words from the Old Testament scriptures, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. The men ran off to the battle on King's Mountain, which turned out to be about the shortest and most decisive battle in the history of American warfare. In a single hour, the men shattered the Ferguson army. The British sustained 900 casualties against the mountain men's 28. It was a total rout. But more than that, it was a turning point. This was Britain's Waterloo in the war, a catalytic moment in all of history. One historian writes about the battle. The victory at King's Mountain was the first in a series of remarkable events that would change the direction of the war in America's favor. Concerning King's Mountain, the British general, Henry Clinton, admitted, though in itself confessedly trifling, overset in a moment all the happy effects of his lordship's glorious victory at Camden, and so encouraged the spirit of rebellion in both the Carolinas that it never could afterwards be humbled. General Clinton's assessment was right on. War is all about morale. The delicate balance of historical moment is shifted in wartime when morale shifts, and there is nothing human leadership can do to guarantee a certain morale. It is the hand of God and small distinct events that shift morale in one direction or another. 
The next momentous battle occurred on January 17, 1781, also on the Southern Front. The British General Tarleton pursued Brigadier General Daniel Morgan with 1,100 British troops through the South Carolina backcountry for weeks. Finally, Morgan elected to take the stand at a broad meadowland called Calpens on January 17th. The Americans were severely outnumbered again, but it was a complete rout. Almost the entire British force was either dead or captured by the end, and Tarleton fled the battlefield alone. Daniel Morgan was also a devout Presbyterian layman of Welsh background. Reports have it that General Morgan rode across the field praising God for the victory. Later, he recorded these words on the Battle of Calpins, Such was the inferiority of our numbers that our success must be attributed under God to the justice of our cause and the bravery of our troops. An Irish Presbyterian soldier from the Carolina backcountry used a few imprecatory words in his prayer. Good Lord, our God that art in heaven, we have a great reason to thank thee for the many battles we have won, the great and glorious Battle of Kings Mountain and the ever-glorious memorable Battle of Calpins, where we made the glorious and proud General Tarleton run down the hill, helter-skelter. The American General George Washington also recognized the importance of these battles and the providential hand of God over these events. He wrote shortly after Calpins, the most remarkable interpositions of the divine government in the hours of our deepest distress and darkness have been too luminous to suffer me to doubt the happy issue of the present contest. Following several minor setbacks for the colonials, the war was over. Yorktown came 10 months after Calpins when Washington moved the troops south and took advantage of the weakened southern front of the British force. And that was the end of it. Well, I could give you so many others, but that would be a summary of some of the greatest providential events, providential interpositions in all of human history to an outcome that has been helpful to the survival of the faith and, uh, and freedom bill. I would include Patrick Henry in the defense of the Bill of Rights in the Virginia Convention. Yep. The Magna Carta, William the Silence hunting trip with the King of France in which he committed himself to save the Dutch people. I'd include Wilberforce. Yeah. In England. Yep. And the defeat of the, the abolition of the slave trade and of yep. slavery eventually. Mm-hmm. So many other events. Well, friends, we'll wrap it up there on this Thanksgiving Day, 2023. Think about what God has done in history. We look at the big events, but what has he done in terms of those small events, those small dominoes in your life that set your life in a good direction? God is busy doing good things in history. Let's give him the glory for it. Let's let's thank God for what he has done for us, for his church, for his people, for not just the survival, but the thriving of his church around the world over these 2,000 years and the blessing of liberty that we have enjoyed Mm. over these, what, 400 years. And that wraps up this edition of the Generations Broadcast. This is Kevin Swanson and Bill Jack saying Happy Thanksgiving. And we'll be back next time. Stay with us.